Oh no! Michael Cohen was my lawyer too. He was supposed to get me out of that jaywalking thing. What am I going to do now that he's in trouble? What if they found my files in his office? I can't promise that I won't swear this week. So here you are. This has been your obscenity warning. Hello, Jews. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, or at least the leading Jewish podcast on iTunes. That's all that matters. Which is all that matters. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Happy Israeli Independence Day. It is today, Thursday, April 19th. I'm joined by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Shalom. Shalom. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Yom Ha'atzma'ut Sameach Lechol Bet Yisrael. Okay, now you're just bragging. All of those. Israel's 70th birthday episode. We will be joined by comedy writer Periel Ashenbrand, who will talk to us about what it's like to be married to an Israeli man. What is what is it like when a nice girl from Queens marries an Israeli guy named Guy? Marries a Sabra. Right. Marries a guy named Guy. Also, Stephanie goes out of studio to the hot new Middle Eastern restaurant, Miznon. Right? Oh, it's so good. Because it's so Spoiler good. alert. The, the uh, cauliflower. To, was... eat, to sit at the feet of Israel's genius, greatest chef ever. And Liel talks to singer Yael Deckelbaum. How was that? Was it a good conversation? It certainly was. And we'll a great song. Get to that in just a few minutes. But first, Liel, on this Israeli Independence Day, what what do they do for Yom? I mean, here in America for Yom Ha'atzmaut, we, we host podcasts. But in Israel... How do they celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut? With great violence and happiness. Uh, it, it is the most special day uh, of the year. You you have a few things, at least when I was young. I, I don't assume it has changed that much that make it very special. The first is that every kid is equipped uh, with what we call spray shelig or snow spray, uh, which is, uh, imagine if you had like a fire extinguisher and you just used it freely on your friends. It was this foamy, soapy, <laughs> disgusting thing in an aerosol can that everyone had. The second thing we all have are plastic hammers, little plastic hammers with like a little, you know, noisemaker at the end. Uh, and the traditional way to celebrate your Matzmot is to run up to your friends, scream your Matzmot Samech, and then hit them as hard as you can with a plastic hammer and or cover them in snow spray while someone right next to you is grilling an insane amount of meat. And in the morning, uh, all of the country's F-16s and F-15s uh, fly uh, overhead in formation. Can you give us like... You guys really, like, you, don't, you don't love your country enough unless, right. unless you do that. And to think for 4th of July, we have like caramel like, corn. Like a baseball game. I mean, come, <laughs> come on now. Can you give us like a quick history lesson for someone who is listening, might not understand what Independence Day is, just like for it, it like is, the Americans? That's a great question, especially because there's this, you know, growing up, a lot of us know Passover and Hanukkah, maybe Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And then at some point, some of us discover there's like 20 more of these days that are religious. And then you discover that like, there's this, there's Israeli ones. It's like the, the holidays just, keep <laughs> just, just too much proliferating. And this was like the <laughs> last keep one, on like Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which means, what does it even mean? Independence Day, of okay. course. Yeah. Yom means day. Yom, that and I know. <laughs> means independence. Yeah. It's actually really funny. Uh, we ran a, a story about this in, in Tablet the other day. The Academy of Hebrew Language had a survey of the most popular words in every decade. And in the 1940s, 1950s, the word was independence. <laughs> this decade, it was application, <laughs> which tells you everything which you need to know. Which is the new independence. Independence? Right. You, you, apps. You build That's your app, it. You In, sell it, you right. go to Silicon Valley. We've <laughs> so, so this is the 70 short years Roman from, calendar, April 19th anniversary. Uh, hey, hey Okay. Hello. Sorry. Hebrew calendar. Hebrew calendar. Hebrew calendar, man. It's Hebrew cal. Every fifth of ER. Yeah. We celebrate uh, the what? day of the Declaration of Independence by David Ben-Gurion. 
Got it. But this isn't actually when the war was won. Uh, That is when the war began. The war has not ended yet. We're (laughs) very hopeful. But, you know, for now, we're doing fine. Got it. For now, we're making TV shows and and apps and and delicious pitas. Is there a... a is Yom Ha'atzmaut colored by some of the political stuff? I mean, this, this clearly is so, an ongoing struggle. Here's the thing. There, there's an, actually an amazing moment that even though I've witnessed it every year throughout my entire life, I still kind of, you know, reel, uh, you know, about every every time I live through it. So the day before Yom Ha'atzmaut is Yom Ha'atzmaut, which is Independence Day, which is Memorial Day. And you spend the day uh, in this kind of really hard to describe sense of melancholy because, you know, every single one of us, you know, myself included, has lost a significant number of friends and family members. And and the day is usually spent, whenever I'm in Israel, it's spent going from one gravesite to another. It's spent visiting all the people you've lost. And it's this most somber day in which the radio plays nothing but these very, very sad songs about young fallen soldiers and you kind of walk around feeling, you know, sort of like way down. And then in the evening, there's a ceremony and it begins somberly. And then all of a sudden turns on a dime and begins this great big festive celebration and everyone runs out to the street with a snow spray, with the hammers, with the music, with the grilled meats. And it's this jarring transition from like real profound existential sorrow to this like exuberance that is really, really hard to fathom even once you've lived through it, you know, 30 or 40 times. But that in a way is like so beautiful and meaningful and and really, I think, profoundly speaks of everything that life in Israel really is. So on this day, do you... you do you miss Israel? Do you wish you were there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If there's some snow spray somewhere, I, I will take it. Stephanie, what, how are you feeling this Yom Ha'atzmaut? Anything going on in your life? No. I think Cat Stevens should, uh, you should paint him blue and white for the day. My <laughs> cat would really like that. I'm, I don't I'm know how he feels. Here. I don't know. We haven't, we haven't discussed Israel yet. Is he a little bit J Street, the cat? I think he's like a libertarian, honestly. <laughs> I think, and like, I think like, every cat is like a Jewish libertarian. Voice for peace. I don't like the word peace. That's he's right. like, I am a menace. Well, this actually brings us to the, the development of the Oppenheimer household, uh, which is that, and of course, when speaking of uh, cats and dogs that need homes, we are actually speaking of Israel as well, of course. Um, cats and dogs and Jews who need homes. Cats and dogs and Jews who need homes. Uh, as members of our Facebook group know, there is a new Oppenheimer puppy. Uh, a Poppenheimer? A Poppenheimer. A Poppenheimer. A Poppenheimer. Uh, because that's what we needed was more dependent creatures, right? With four daughters, a dog, a badly mannered cat, and a son on the way. Obviously, what we needed was a dog, a dog, a puppy. So we got Minerva McGonagall Oppenheimer on Sunday, which is what um, happens when you let children name. No, animals. no, 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 no. It's that they thought we were fated to get this dog because on PetFinder.com, there was a woman in New Jersey who had five, who had a litter of five puppies that she had rescued from Georgia or wherever. And she had named And she had that. named them all for characters from J.K. Rowling's Can role. I just say that is a brilliant yeah. freaking strategy for yes. dog adoption? Yes. Just give the dogs on the website names that you know Elsa, kids would absolutely Moana. Like. Yep. So <laughs> this is my dog, Elsa, Moana, <laughs> right. Harry Potter. So of these five adorable the dogs. Rock Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so of all of the five, uh, you know, equally aged eight week old puppies in this litter, my kids picked 
Minerva, whom we're calling Minnie, because they they like they Minerva. Identified with they identified with these are like total Hufflepuffs and not Slytherins. They or are whatever Dumble Snitches or whatever. I don't even you know I don't e- I've I've only read the first Dumble book snitches. and that was years ago. No to me, spoilers. To me, every character is Quidditch. Okay, there's the boy from Dumbledore named Quidditch, right? So that's the news of the of the Jews from New Haven. Do we have any NOTJ from I don't know Stephanie? How about how about the Netherlands? What's going on there? Okay, so the latest brouhaha. And brouhaha itself is a brouhaha because it's alleged to have come, people say it comes from brouhaha. Anyway. Right. One of the great urban legends we've debunked. <laughs> no, well, I don't know. I still believe in it. Okay. Anyway, where was I? A brouhaha brewing in, in Amsterdam because there was a Jewish employee at the Anne Frank house um, who basically said, I, I think he was started. The, the story is a little bit unclear. It's been translated into English, but it's not, it's not fully fleshed out. But so he basically said, like, I, can I wear my yarmulke? I'm, I'm Orthodox. And they were like, hmm can you wear a baseball hat on top of it? And like, so, like his option was to wear an Anne Frank house well, the, baseball the, hat. The reason that they gave was like, we're really sorry. This is a neutral place. And your yarmulke is pretty offensive. Basically like they don't have, they said they don't have a policy about like religious items. And it's interesting because the people who work there probably aren't. I mean, I've been there. I don't recall the staff there, but they're probably nice Dutch, Dutch people. They're Dutch. And so they were, they're non so put Dutch. off by this idea that he wants to wear a yarmulke. And then of course, they it made the new. I mean, they they it took like six months for them to issue a ruling. But it was so, so Dutch of this guy too that he asked permission to wear his yarmulke to work, and then he covered up while he was waiting months for them to issue the ruling, and then finally they issued the ruling, and he was upset. I mean, it's like in America, we just you know, it's like that great moment in Doctor Strange Love, you know, no fighting in the war room. This is like you can't wear a yarmulke at the Anne, Anne Frank, Frank house. And his thing was like, are you joking? And <laughs> what so is my, this? My a favorite... memorial to a famous victim of the Holocaust who was Jewish. It's, it obviously speaks to like the large European discomfort with religious symbols, but my favorite favorite take is from the Daily Mail in the UK, which basically just gives you bullet points of the story before you read the story. And the first one is Barry Vingerling, 25, must wear his skullcap or yarmulke as an Orthodox Jew. That's like the first line of the story. <laughs> his skullcap. After putting on his phylacteries in the morning, he wears his skullcap. <laughs> on first day of work at Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, he was told he couldn't. Museum said it might endanger the neutrality of the foundation. He had to apply for formal permission from higher ups. I mean, it's like a bad haiku. But basically, to me, I'm like, organizations just need to not like step in it. It's like now this is a big issue and we're all talking about the Anne Frank house and no, you know, I I, I think there's something actually a surprise, surprise. Surprisingly, you think there's something more sinister. This is an organization that is supposed to be dedicated solely to, you know, a, a very specific historical memory of something that happened. And the kind of attempt to use this language should be like, oh, we're a neutral place. Or what does it mean, a neutral like you're place? literally Anne Frank's house. This is, this is where this, this yeah. young woman hid until she was, you know, snatched away and sent to a death camp by the Nazis for being Jewish. There's nothing neutral about it. It is a historically specific site. Don't turn it into some kind of like, Global cosmopolitan universalist. Who do you think they're afraid example? of offending? What's at stake? Everyone. When, I like, just they I, think yarmulkes. Off- they want it to be a safe space for anti semites as well. No, they want it to be. They see the insertion of actual religious specificity and historical specificity as offensive because I think the way they understand the world, if I may be so presumptuous, is like, well, this is a an instance of intolerance and why no one should be intolerant. Well, you know, there's truth to that. It's also a specific, you know kind of uh, commemoration of a specific child murdered under very specific circumstances for being a member of a specific religious group. L- let's not forget that. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, in, in relevant news of the Jews, uh, there was just a survey taken by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany. 
uh, where <laughs> they other news of where the they Holocaust. surveyed they surveyed 1,350 Americans aged 18 and over. Uh, so basically, kind of skewing toward young people, young people and up. But they were trying to survey millennials, and um, they asked them, "Have you heard of the Holocaust?" And they found that over a fifth of those uh, interviewed did not really know or weren't sure if they knew what the Holocaust was. Like the Holocaust. That's the group that sings. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. I am for real. <laughs> so the, the no, millennials definitely don't know who that is. That's but also that's they're like outcast. They right. know outcast or the Holocaust. Or the Holocaust. So you know, this I don't is know which is more offensive. Honestly, I mean, this is one of those surveys where, on the one hand, it's obviously very, very troubling. Uh, first of all, I'm shocked if four fifths of them do know what the Holocaust that's right. is. Like that's not bad. Eighty percent. I'm not sure. Eighty percent of the. I guarantee you, eighty percent of them don't know what century the Holocaust that, was in. That should be the news. Or when the Civil War was. But really, you could flip that and say eighty percent of them have some idea the Holocaust was about Jews being murdered. Not too shabby. As I eighty percent of say. Americans, not dumb. <laughs> right. But you know, when you take these surveys, I mean, eighty percent of evangelical Christians can't name more than three of, out of the Ten Commandments. 80% of Jews don't know what Yom Ha'atzmaut is. Like, but it, now they do. But now they do. So I don't know. I mean, 80% is, of anything's but amazing. But look, it's a reason for, I mean, people just, I, my Facebook feed was like up in arms about it and everyone's really upset. I mean, the interesting thing, Harry Enten, who was our guest at our live show at the JCC Manhattan, I think last year, he is like, you know, a poll guy. And he basically made some interesting points on Twitter. He was just like, look, in a 1994 Gallup poll, 17% didn't know what the Holocaust referred to. Like, here are other studies where, you know, in 1982, a poll found 25% of, of Americans said 2 million or fewer Jews were killed. He's like, I don't necessarily believe, first of all, that these numbers are as high as they seem, and also that this is anything new. Like, and he was like, and in 1944, only 17% of Germans <laughs> right. responded I mean, that they know what the Holocaust most is. Most of us are mostly stupid. Like, I don't know what the theory of relativity is. I don't remember any geometry. Uh, like, I basically got two things out of my education, which were like, Semicolons and some basic conversational French. I have no I mean, math. We. I have no math above algebra. <laughs> like that is it. And we are fine. Yeah, I mean it's like and yet here Mark I go. Oppenheimer, PhD, Yale <laughs> University. And yet I some conversational French. I wake up in the morning, I select my Argyle socks of the day, I make sure they don't Your clash. Life is so charming. I make sure they don't clash with my plaid. You know, I'm not saying like obviously some people have bigger things to worry about. They have to worry about, you know, getting harassed by police or putting food on the table, but all of these things can happen without specific historical knowledge, which is a truth that us humanists like to deny. But, you know, like that's actually not the problem with the discourse around Jews. Holocaust education is not the biggest problem. What's the problem? I mean, what isn't the problem? The problem is hypernationalism on the right. The problem is anti-Semitism on the left. Like, but I think amidst all of that, seeing a poll like this, it is very sensational. I mean, look, it was dropped on Holocaust Remembrance Day last April, uh, last Thursday. And it's like, yeah, it is sort of scary to see this. But I think we sort of need to take a step back and say, look, I like the idea of saying like 80% of people do know. And I remember I was in college. I think I talked about this. And a, the girl who lived next door to me was like, did you, was like reading some book for her history class. She's like, did you know what they did in the Holocaust? <laughs> I'm like, bitch, I know what they did. They did it to us. Like, ask my hold, freaking hold grandparents. Let me like, call grandma. Hey, ask, grandma. Ask my dead know? relatives. Why are you not here? Like, what? So Please. I, and she was, this was at a and good she, school and this was a really smart person. And so she just, in her upper, it just had never occurred. I mean, maybe in high school, they didn't do the, I mean, like, I think the units on the, it's different everywhere. And so I, I don't know. I don't know what we do. I don't know what we do. You know, there's probably some Armenian listeners right now. Yeah, like, it's like, oh yeah, eighty percent. You're complaining about eighty yeah. percent of people not you know, knowing the, about Kim your Kar- the best thing genocide. Kim Kardashian, like Kim Kardashian's yeah. real value in geopolitics is like she went to the White House Correspondents Dinner and said someone said like, oh, what do you, what caused you care about? And she's like, 
recognition of the Armenian genocide. So I didn't know that, but now I like her. Hell yeah. And it's like she's you the most prominent Armenian. Yeah, you turned me on that. No, well, I was about to say, you know who the most prominent Armenian is? was OJ's lawyer. And then I remembered, oh, shoot, <laughs> that was her dad. That, a real yeah. TVT. Correct. <laughs> hey, Liel, uh, can, you, can you take us out of the news of the Jews or something a little bit lighter? So Netflix just announced Netflix. that it is Chilling. Uh, producing a chill-worthy miniseries about the life of the famous Israeli spy Ellie Cohen, who uh, under uh, a false identity lived in Syria, became one of the leading Syrian operators, politicians, uh, was discovered and, and traumatically hung by the Syrians. And who do you think they got to play Ellie Cohen? Natalie Portman. Rachel Weiss. Sasha Baron Cohen. Whoa. Which really, I mean, in, in my mind, is going to make for some... And this is un- like a serious movie. Uh, well, not for me, because here's, here's how I'm going to hear that miniseries. Yeah, it's very serious. It's a tragic story. How I'm going to hear it in my head is like, very nice. My name is Ellie Cohen. I like. In my country, many rich Syrians like to spy for Israel. Wow, wow, wow. It's going to be Borat, like, throw the Jew down the well from beginning to end in my mind. Yeah, go like this. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to make your daughter cry. I apologize a trillion times. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to make your daughter cry. I apologize. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We have a special guest this week for our Yom Ha'atzmaut show. It's Periel Ashenbrand. She's a writer, comedian, author. She actually was on our 100th episode interviewing us, which is one of my favorite episodes of all time. And we asked her back because there's one part of the American experience of the Israeli experience that we really wanted to, to probe, so that to is speak. Not, that it's not talked about It's quite not talked enough. about. It's not political. It's what life is like when you're married to an Israeli. So, Periel, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so honored to consistently be here on these um, major landmarks, and I'm all for a good probing. <laughs> uh, and so, <laughs> so let's talk about your husband. Yeah. So, Perry, tell us like a little bit about you, because you interviewed us on the last show, but this is our chance to really learn about you. Where, do, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And how did you end up you know, married to— And why did you marry an Israeli? So, first of all, to answer your question, being married to an Israeli man— a straight Israeli man is essentially akin to being a lion tamer. I mean, that's like really kind of like what it feels like and like a day in, day out um, experience. Um, I grew up in Queens. I clawed my way out at age 17. <laughs> I realized very quickly. The zoological quickly, metaphors yeah. are very strong today. <laughs> I real Well, I realized very quickly that I was in the wrong borough. Um, and... 
My mom actually is from Israel. She came here when she was 13 years old. It is very possible that my grandfather, who was a really sort of major author and Zionist journalist, may have been in the Mossad. Um, he traveled really a good deal. Um, That's what he told grandma. He's like, I'm going to be gone for uh, three nights because I'm in the Mossad. <laughs> No, Don't no. ask questions. Nobody says <laughs> that. My mother gets irate. female comes irate. to you and talks to you, just say, right. yeah. Maybe. He actually married her to save her life. He was from Poland. She was from Lithuania. They never met. He was a big journalist, so he was allowed out. And he married her to save her life. Wow. Um, my mom was born in what was then Palestine. And they came here when she was 12. And so I grew up culturally very Israeli. My dad's a New York Jew. He grew up in the Bronx and the East Village. Um... And he worked for the Karen Kayemet. So he was going, to, doesn't speak a word of Hebrew, but was very. Wait, what is that? Yeah, thing what you is just that? Said? It sounds amazing when you say it like that. I mean, you guys is should a, all just the, be the fired JNF. right is now. That a, is that a food stuff? Is that. That is the Jewish National Fund. How oh. do you say it in Hebrew? Karen, Karen Kayemet. Okay. Yeah. Trees, right? They Karen plant trees. Karen Kayemet. Yeah. They plant trees. Blue boxes. Amongst oh, the other trees. Things. I get the I know, I know from the JNF. I mean, do you guys really have this show and not know what the Jewish know, National no. Fund is? We know, we know from the JNF. We love them. I just didn't Some know. Some of our favorite listeners are from the JNF. But I never, I never knew the Hebrew name for yeah. it. Anyway, the point is, is that I grew up culturally very Israeli. My, I mean, we weren't religious at all. My father actually used to sneak me out of synagogue during Yom Kippur to take me to Burger King. Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't move. have a cheeseburger. Right. <laughs> oh, no, he totally would. <laughs> That's a strong move. That's, That's like, are you there, God? It's me, Burger King. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but culturally, it was very Israeli. Like, most of my mom's friends were Israeli. And my mom broke her teeth to make sure that I learned Hebrew. And yet, I will say, and correct me if I'm wrong, when, when you meet that special someone, and you'll soon tell us about the special circumstances of, of your meeting, mm -hmm. uh, you realize you're really an American Jew. Totally. Okay. So a how thousand, did, a how New did York meet, Jew specifically? How did you meet your uh, Prince Charming? It was a one night stand that went terribly awry. <laughs> it's all like that's what my second book is about. It's like, are you gonna leave now, or are you basically gonna become my husband for the next? False. <laughs> I was like, see you later. That was fun. He was like, wait, 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 back up. Where'd you meet? Israel, my cousin's wedding. Okay. So I used to go to Israel every summer. We have my mother grew up in an apartment in Tel Aviv with another family because they didn't have money and they shared this apartment. I'm an only child. I grew up with there were three kids that were basically like my siblings, and we spent months on end with this family, which she's like my second mother. From when I was 18 until I was 31, though, I didn't go to Israel at all. So I went back at age 32, excuse me, age 32 for my cousin's wedding. And that was where I and met Israeli Guy. And Israeli weddings are fun. I was trashed at the wedding. I'd had like 14 araks, which is anis for anybody who's not familiar. Um, and by the end of, and he was one of my cousin who got married, one of his closest friends. By the end of the wedding, I was sitting in a corner with a yarmulke on, shoveling a falafel in my face. And I had just like trina all over me. And apparently God- like, that is hot. <laughs> he was like, any girl who is going to eat like that is probably pretty good in bed. <laughs> just saying. Um, so what wound up happening is, is cut to nothing happened. I barely remembered meeting him. Like I was- trashed and whatever a couple of days later there's something that israelis do called shabbat chatan after you get married the parents of the groom do a thing in their house and 
I was just sitting there in my aunt and uncle's garden, which was really where I grew up. Like I always had this very, very soft spot for Israel, um, even as I became very left politically. Um, I grew up with Israel as like this magical idea for me that I had something that other kids didn't have. Like I grew up in Queens on like the streets and like, you know, I was going to my grandparents. You had Narnia somewhere. In the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had 14th Street with like needles in the East Village. Like I could walk around barefoot, you know, and go to the beach. Like that was something that was. Yeah, you needed Israel. Yeah. And apparently Israel needed me. All right. So then you are in the Shabbat Chatan. And somebody said, Guy is here. And my best friend from high school's brother's name was Guy. And I had a huge crush on him. And he was killed in September 11th. And that was the only other person I ever knew whose name was Guy. So I heard, I, my back was to it. And somebody said, Guy is here. And suddenly, I swear on my life, I just felt like the room just started getting like wonky. And he, I saw him and I was like, oh my God, I have to have sex with this guy. But he wasn't, I was like, you know, like, let's go upstairs and have sex. Like nothing doing. Like it took like two or three more meetings before like he actually he was shy and i think i intimidated him frankly see we have a soft side how long after that were you married a year and a half and then and was it obvious that you were going to end up here like was there a question of where you would i had always wanted to move to israel so i moved there to write my second book which in you know the irony is that on my knees available on Amazon, um, which ironically wound up being about him because I moved to Israel to write the book. Um, And no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I had always wanted to move there. And then I started dating him. And I was like, you know, fuck it. Let me go rent an apartment in Tel Aviv. But I realized after about six months that there was no way I could actually survive living there. I think for the same reason my grandfather moved the entire family to New York, like the ceiling if it's stultifying. It's too... There, what am I doing? In, like, what am I, as Periel Ashenbrand, doing in Israel? What, what, what is there for me to do there? That's kind of why you moved here, Leo. No, he is got kicked out. Is there a provincial out. nature there? Like, is there a way... <laughs> oh, my God, there's a ultimatum. super... Provin- I mean, it's super primitive. And so but, you, even as an outsider, couldn't... <laughs> be, no, no, I'm just saying. You have, like, taxi driver. Like, there is... First of all, yes. There's something very primitive about the culture. And there's something very, and there's something very beautiful in that. But you know, it, it's, you're basically saying they're noble savages. Periel is the uh, modern day Mark Twain who arrives in her white suit to visit right. the Levant, Connecticut Yankee, and, uh, <laughs> and tell King, us King Netanyahu's But is it also court. that like everyone knows each other? Is it like is it too much of that? It's too? also very segregated. And like that was the thing that really struck me. Like I grew up in Queens with a really sort of profound understanding of racial inequality and social justice that was really important to me. And suddenly I was in Israel and this was something that actually really shocked me. Like everyone was Israeli. Like everyone was speaking Hebrew. Now, you know, you could say everybody's from someplace else. And to some degree, that's true. And that's interesting from Iraq, from Iran, from Afghanistan. But ultimately, the culture. Was there too many Jews for you? Just no, it wasn't. Diver- with- it, th- I, and maybe, I don't know, maybe if I really live there, like this is something that like you can create for yourself. But it's not diverse. Periel, I want to get to the stereotypes. Yeah. You married... And Israeli. Shlomo. You are. Guy. And a New York Jew. Mm-hmm. You are X, he is Y. The Venus and Mars, if you will. There's a reason why Israelis nick- are nicknamed Sabras, 
which is the cactus fruit, which are, you know, sharp and prickly on the outside and soft and sweet on the inside. There is no internal monologue, like zero sort of filter, things that are so offensive. And like, I don't need to know everything that you're thinking. You know, he's always like, if you wanted a guy that was just going to smile at you and agree with everything that you say, you know, you married the wrong person. You married an American That's Jewish right. guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a happy medium, right? So, like, when you bring him to meet your cousins, your family, like, I get not uh, the non-Israeli family members. Mm -hmm. Were there? Was there like any funny culture clash, Zohan? No, everybody loves him. I mean, you can just watch all of the videos that I post of him because I think that, <laughs> you know, I think that that really captures... Again, the zoological uh, metaphors continue. Like, yeah. I post Do adorable you, photos of him on Instagram. Everybody loves him because he really is... First of all, he cooks incredibly. With, I don't know. There, there's something about Israeli men that is really family-oriented. And I never wanted to get married and have kids. I was really just trying to have a one-night stand with this really hot Israeli guy. Um, I think this is the difference. When you're in, Israelis are not neurotic the way American Jews are neurotic. They're not freaking out about bullshit because they actually know what it means to have your life at risk. And it's not with like the bullshit anxiety that we have as American Jews, especially as New York Jews. So that's a major sort of divide between the two. When you go there to visit, his family, uh, his friends, do they have any real idea of of what your kind of cultural background is because i feel like american jew i say this as someone who straddles both worlds american jews do have a great deal invested in israelis and israeli culture and know and understand a fair deal about it uh but the opposite is not always true i don't think israelis are necessarily very interested in american jewish culture as such there's american culture which everyone in israel loves but, you know, ask people if they've read you know, Soul Bellow or anything. Like, no, I, I think that Americans like Israelis because they seem exotic to us um, and they're tough. They're like sexy. And, you know, you know, you'll never hear an American going to Israel that doesn't say, you know, the girls, the, the girls in the are the most gorgeous women on the planet. In and the, the army. Gu- yeah, the women totally. with the guns. Yeah, absolutely. It's like there's this really sexy idea of um, what that culture is that I don't think goes the other way. I think that there's I think that there also is this idea that we're really spoiled. And compared to them, I think we are really spoiled. Um, we, we have luxuries that they don't have. You know, like, look, just even school, right? Like, gun. Like, the kids, like, you throw a bunch of kids in a fucking room with, like, water and mitzpetel, which is basically, like, you know, flavored sugar water and, like, a... So the gun is Hebrew for kindergarten, yeah. not firearm. Right, right. Not an, an gun. important observation. Not gun, yeah. gun, sorry. Yeah. Um, or bamba is a great example, which is, like, akin to, I don't know, Doritos. But that's here now, you know. Yeah, but, like, Israeli kids start getting peanut butter right. snacks when they're, like, one, you know, we actually are slathering peanut butter on Sid's belly to ensure <laughs> to preclude. But you know that doctors, a friend allergies. of mine said that their first daughter is very allergic to nuts, and so this, the doctor has told them to start giving bomba right. to their like yeah. very young. Right, baby. and the Israelis will tell you we've been telling you to do this for, for years. Like you big morons, fifty years. So 
How old's your son? He's almost five. And do you, so you grew up with this, you know, Israel was the, the land of milk and honey for you. Do you, how does he see dad's native land and, and how do you want him to see it? I want him to have what I had. I think it's one of the biggest gifts that my mother ever gave me. The gift of, first of all, another language. I mean, as a writer um, and as somebody who, you know, sort of has a real love affair with words, I think that the gift of another language does things to your mind that... I don't think you can get from anything else to feel like you can communicate, I mean, and interact with another place or culture is something that you can't do without the language. I'm trying to put him in camp there. Now, any American Jew knows that camp. What What is camp? Like you're, so there's sleepaway camp, there's, you know, Pierce, whatever. I went to Pierce. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like you go to camp, you get picked up by a bus, you have like, activities that are scheduled throughout the day. There's a lot of sunscreen. There's a pool. There may be bug juice. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Camp in Israel is like the first seven minutes of Saving Private Ryan, basically. (laughs) It's like, here's a beach. Some of you will survive by the end of the day. Most of you will not. So you're going to toughen him up. I never thought of it as toughening (laughs) him up. I thought of it as like giving him an opportunity to be like embraced by this world. Um... But apparently it's, I mean, it's April. They don't have the schedules yet for camp there. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, that doesn't uh, no, surprise saying, you. Oh, right. No, okay. no. What, to, to have them so in does Hebrew? he speak Hebrew? Who does that? He, and do you guys speak it at home? Guy speaks to him only in Hebrew. And I speak to him half in Hebrew because I'm lazy. And it's easier for me to do it in English. Um you speak to him in Creole, basically. Right. I speak to him in Padua. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Wagwan Ari. Ari, man. Before we go, could you tell us like where we can find more of you? What are you working on these days, Perry? I am working on a comedy show, which is monthly at Gold Bar called Just the Tip. And there's one tonight, April 19th in New York. And you can find more on that um, at Just the Tip. NewYorkNY.com, and I'm on Instagram, Miss Periel, and I'm working on a TV show. Wow, called Deli Meets, where Ooh. I take a famous Jew to a famous deli Jewy deli. Meets, I love that. <laughs> deli meat cutes. I really don't steal like that. that. Anybody, we're still in development. Correct. We would be happy to be Jews taken to delis. I don't think we're that, we're not that famous. Anymore. I, I'm just. Nah. I got to put it out there. We Her just want to go to a deli. Way, way famouser. Periel Ashenbrand. Just the tip, ny.com. I can't believe you got that URL. I, I, could, I was like, who took it? And it was Periel. Thanks for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yay. That was great. Oh, my Periel, that was amazing. Nothing you can take can tear me away from my God. Nothing you can do cause I'm stuck right glue to my God. I'm sticking to my God like a snail. Hey, J. Crew, listen to this review that we got on iTunes. This is a goodie. It comes from Crispy Checks. 
I began listening to Unorthodox when it first started and immediately was a fan. At that time, I was going through the process of conversion and it was a breath of fresh air amid all the heavy Torah and Jewish history lessons I was undertaking. I look forward to new episodes every week to provide some insight, conversation topics, and exposure to interesting guests that I can rely on to be thought-provoking and funny. Mark, Stephanie, and Liel have become my three J Crew pals that I rely on to bring me bits of Jewish culture and community, despite my living in a very un-Jewish area. Thanks for being a little thread for me, keeping me connected. Hey, Crispy Checks. Thanks a lot. It's reviews like that that push us up the iTunes charts so that people see us, so that they subscribe, so that we have more listeners, so that we can keep going. And we want more people to be like Crispy Checks. Go on iTunes, write a review, and if we use it, we're going to send you a new laptop sticker. Send the review to unorthodox at tabletmag.com if we've read it on the air. And we will mail you some unorthodox stickers. Listen, if you want more unorthodox, there are other ways. You can sign up for the newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You can search for us on Facebook and join our Facebook group. And if that's not enough, you can come see us live too. The whole crew will be at the JCC of Manhattan in July. I will be giving just, just a little bit of me twixt now and then. I will be at the First Church of West Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut on May 3rd, speaking on the topic, Four Little Jews writing about religion as a father of four. Just Google First Church West Hartford and Mark Oppenheimer. You'll find all the info there. I will be back at the superb Greenwich Reform Synagogue on Friday, May 18th to study a little Torah and drink a little wine with them. If you want to book me or any of us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross at tabletmag.com. We want to be around the country doing live shows and we have a lot of them in the works. And of course, finally, you got to wear and carry your unorthodox too. Go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers so that you can put us on your body and around your coffee. So everyone's been talking about this new restaurant in New York City called Me's Known, and I didn't know much about it, but I went with our producer Josh Cross to check it out, and the chef behind it, Al Shani, is this like huge, huge, huge deal in Israel. Liel, I don't know. I don't know if you know him. I think, uh, and I, I do not use this word lightly, I think he's a genius. I think he's one of the greatest chefs uh, on earth at the moment, and I am extremely jealous not to have hung with him and his pita masterpieces. Well, the funny thing about Al Shani is like he's this he's like the master of the pita. He started this upscale pita joint in in Israel. Then he took it not to New York or the United States where most people go, most Israeli chefs. He went Paris, Melbourne, like he went everywhere else, Vienna, and then he finally comes to to New York basically. So this is sort this has been it was exciting. His fancy restaurant in Tel Aviv is the place called Hasalon, you know, the living room. In which is located uh, in a in an abandoned warehouse uh, in the industrial zone in Tel Aviv. It's a secret restaurant, only open three nights a week. And there's a cell phone number of a guy, and you just call and go straight to voicemail. Is this a Stefan bit? It may as well be the hottest restaurant in Tel Aviv is called Hasalon. This one has everything. You leave a message to the guy, and the guy calls you back, like, what? And you're like, Wednesday, three people at 10. He's like, okay. And then you show up. And Eyal Shani uh, starts a day by going to the market. He buys whatever moves him, whatever seems good and fresh, and then he cooks it. And there's no real menu. <laughs> he just serves whatever it is that he wants to. And, you know, his partner, who is like the most famous television director in Israel, is the DJ. And they're playing like Duran Duran at like a, a, a mind-blowing volume. And everyone is drunk and dancing on the table. And it's a fantastic experience. 
So Al Shani. Yeah, amazing. Man. I didn't have quite that experience, but Misnone opened in, in, in New York and I went to take a look and I hope you guys enjoy. And so do you feel like New York is ready for you now? Like look, for the PETA, for this look, amazing thing no, that you're doing? No, i tell you something. Yeah, New York is ready because there's a lot of ethnic kitchens with hot peppers and sunny tastes. But you know, my food, I think you taste, you just taste it. You feel when you are eating a cauliflower, you feel the essence of the cauliflower. Nothing else but the cauliflower. It's becoming your whole world and you can reach all the world of the cauliflower. What I'm doing is I'm purifying the kitchen. It's like, I think that each ingredient is a whole world. And you don't have to, to find how to combine it with some other things, with some other ingredient. You just have to understand what is the essence, what is the crystal, what is the reason of this ingredient, and to express it. You ask if New York is ready. <laughs> Look, New York is going on straight lines. You can see it in the street. You see the people that are walking in the street, the women with long hair, everything is straight, going straight. There's a system. I feel that I must break this queue. I must give the energy of the raw and live and wide ingredients. And you've, you've talked about the, seeing the primal intent of every vegetable. I think you said yes. that in an interview. And you actually, you've said that you see yourself as sort of a tool of the almighty. This is actually much bigger than the kitchen, right? For you, you're not a creator. You are sort of an interpreter, right? Look, I'm touching the food. I'm touching the ingredients. And there's a lot of spirit that's coming out of this. So how do your New York diners compare to the people in Look. Tel Aviv? Are we mean? Look. Are we pushing? They are less flexible. <laughs> less flexible than the diners in Tel Aviv. You know, in Tel Aviv, it's so flexible, the people are so flexible because they got no roots and they cannot believe in tomorrow. For the Israelis, there's no tomorrow. You cannot know what will be happening, so you are not accept accepting something from tomorrow. So there's the moment. And the moment is to, is to be the whole world for you. I think you have a fan here. Uh, I want to say something. This man is a huge genius. A genius? A genius. And I'm a huge fan. That's it. What's your favorite thing here? Huh? What's the best thing here? Uh, it feels like home. That's yeah. the favorite thing here. <laughs> feels like feels home. Like home. I like that. So how does it... The Israelis are very grateful. Of course, yeah. I bought them the Israeli taste and I bought them my own kitchen. The no. Miznon in Israel, the Miznon is very popular because that was the point when the street food was begun. And the street food, that it's not... There was a street food. There was a falafel. There was a shawarma. There was a hummus. And there were pita. But... We're pausing for a selfie. 
But the idea, the principle of the Miznon is taking the highest cuisine made from the best ingredients, from the best knowledge and feelings, and combine it inside the pita. What's happening there? The, the pita is it the most genius word in the world. Why? Because it's a pocket. It's a wound. And when you put the food inside it, there's a steam that's coming out from the food. If you will put it on a plate, it will evaporate into the wood. If you are putting it inside the pita, it's the steam begins to circulate. And then you are selling the pita. You cannot charge an expensive price for a pita because it's a sweet So you have to take the best food, put it inside the pita, make it cheap and make it cheap it's like a lose-lose situation <laughs> but it's a win-win situation why it's a win-win situation because if it is cheap so you are reaching the young people if you are reaching the young people you are reaching their energy and you know the energy of your readers of the people that are eating the things that you are doing is one of the most important ingredients inside the food because it's all about carrying an energy. And I need the energy of the street inside my food. And also, when you are making a street food, it's like all the city is your own restaurant. There's no walls of a restaurant the city belongs to. I decided to sell it as cheap as I can. Because again, I needed the young people, I needed the energy, I needed the happiness. And From the that future, moment right? that I did it, I became the most popular man in Israel. I bet. <laughs> you were very popular in New York too. So, so how long does it take for that business to work? How long? Just, is it just that so many people came to eat these cheap pitas that it actually worked out for you? Because it was a risk, right? To sell them cheap? I'm not looking on the risks. I follow my my ideas. I'm following my vision. Suddenly, there's a thing that catching my mind, that catching my heart, that catching all my life, and I have to do it. I'm not thinking about the results. I just know that I have to follow my passion. Ken, minute. Oh, we're taking another picture. He's, this is a popular guy. He is a very popular guy. Yes, he is. So it's like people, it's home. That's what you're recreating here. It's amazing to see, to see those people, to see Israelis and sort of... Look, here in New York, they're so grateful to you. Yes, because, you know, in the end and in the beginning, we are animals. And if you are looking on animals, that each animal got its own food. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you are getting out from Israel and living in New York, you can get it all what you want, but you cannot get the food that is similar to your blood. Here, I'm giving them the frequency of their blood. Therefore, they are so grateful. Amazing. So will you settle a question our producer Josh and I were talking about? Is a pita a sandwich? Pita is a sandwich. That's what he says. Yes, pita is a sandwich. 
but it's almost completely closed. I mean, again, it's a wall because nothing is coming out from the people. Everything remains inside the people. The steam, the heat, the bouquet, everything. And it's it's genius because like we take two pieces of bread and put them together, like everything falls out the side. I mean, the, the pita actually is brilliant. And I'm surprised, you know, because Americans, we like to eat as much as possible. And the idea of the pita really hasn't taken on here yet, right? There's It's not taken off. And the idea for Americans of putting as much food as you can inside this, this pocket does seem very appealing. There's measurements. The pita is leading you in which way to build the food inside. What will be the quantity? I cannot tell you what is the quantity, but when you are doing it, mm -hmm. you feel the right proportion. And when you are giving it to somebody to eat it, you feel that it was made from the right proportions. So it's not a question of a huge quantity. It's balanced quantity. Oh, no, that's that. Now you've lost us Americans. We want, we want more. No, I don't think so because it's giving a full satisfaction. We have to, you're, we have to relearn, right? You're teaching us how to... No, no, because you are not learning it from the outside. You are learning it from the inner parts of your body. I mean, you are eating it and you feel happiness and quietness and balance. So you don't need a huge quantity. So each restaurant in different in the different locations, each known has different food, right? Yes, There's of local course. food. So what is our like our well give us, what are some of the local foods in the other locations and then what is the New York Look, specialty? In Israel it's the original menu that is changing from mouth to mouth, but they're the classics. In Paris, for example, I put beef bourguignon inside the pita. He's had it. I think that in the good days, it is the best beef bourguignon in Paris. <laughs> in New York, I understood very quickly that the sandwich of New York is the burger sandwich, the hamburger. I realized it. And then I thought in which way I can make a kind of original one. Mm -hmm. And then I thought that I will flatten the hamburger, roast it on one side, put some cheddar cheese, and warp it. When you warp a thing, you are creating a shape of a warping. Oh, wow. That shape got a very special taste. So it's the burger is folded over? It's, it's folded. Like, wow. It's folded. And there's a big bubble of warm steam inside the wok. And when you are taking your first bite, all the steam is coming into your mouth. And first of all, you smell it and then you eat it. So it's a completely different burger experience that I succeed to do. So I'm very happy with this. Well, that is amazing. 
Ayoshani, thank you. Thank you. So much for being thank here with you. I mean for sitting down talking with us. I know you're getting spotted left and right yes. when you're out here. <laughs> and this this place is amazing and According to Instagram, everyone is here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So nice to meet you. Stephanie Butnick visiting Ms. Known in Chelsea Market in New York. So delicious. To the mailbox, a voicemail from our loyal listener, Rebecca Cinnamon Murphy. From outside of Chicago. This is my response to your call in who was concerned about how he could sort of make his son Jewish, um, even though he no longer believes in God. And I have to say, like, I got to argue with the premise. Like, my most successful realization is that you can't choose who your kids are going to be religiously. All you can do is give them resources. Like everybody knows a family of Orthodox, observant people who end up with an atheist and somebody who gets even more Orthodox and somebody who becomes Buddhist. Like that's just it's what happens. So just give up the idea that you're going to decide his religious identity and give him resources. The more the better. Um, I sort of agree with 20% of that and disagree with about 80% of that because kids take a lot of cues from their parents. I mean, nothing's a guarantee, but I think my kids will be more like me than not in a lot of ways. And I'll still love them even if they're not. But she seems to be arguing that we have no influence at all. No, but, you know, I didn't take it like that at all. It's interesting. No, I, you know, I took it like give them resources as in precisely in the spirit I think you mean it. So like whatever you model, whatever they see in the house, if you see you, if they see you actually caring about this, learning, taking the time to invest yourself emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, they're likely to follow in your footsteps because it will be organic to them. I, I didn't mm. see it as in like, here's the Judaism toolbox. I'm going to be in the living room reading the sports section. <laughs> you study the Talmud. Go like, build something with this toolbox. <laughs> that's right. All right, fair enough. Anyway, thanks so much for the comment. And a second and final Yom Ha'atzma'ut voicemail. Hi, my name is Julia Rodriguez. I just wanted to tell you that when I was listening to the thing about the teacher who got fired from the friend school, which I agree sounds pretty ridiculous, uh, I was reminded of this song by Spike Jones from the 40s. I believe it's called Der Führer's Face. And it's basically Spike Jones, not the filmmaker who is alive now, but an old comedic musician from the 40s and the 50s. Anyway, he sang a song about Hitler. If you don't know it, you should go check it out. It's quite hilarious. Anyway, um, oh, I have a Bomba story, too. My husband, who is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, is just obsessed with Bomba, and he had a job interview, and one of the questions was, if you could take one food with you, to a desert island, what would he take? And guess what he said? He said, Bamba. And he got the job. So there you go. I really want to know what job interview asked <laughs> you what favorite food would you take? Like, who asked that question? Listeners, we love you. Oh, my Lord. And now here's a little Fuhrer's face. And who 
Laura says, we is the master race. The higher, higher, right in the poorest space. Not to love the poor is a great disgrace. So the higher, right in the poorest space. When Herr Gerbel says, we own the world in space. The if you want to send us a letter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. All right. For this Yom Hatzmut episode, we sent our roving musical correspondent, Leah Leibowitz, to talk to Israeli chanteuse Yael Deckelbaum. Yael is really fascinating. She uh, She's one of the hottest pop stars in Israel. But one reason why I've always been fascinated with her work, her father um, was was a, an, or is an, an immigrant from Canada. Uh, and he raised his daughter almost exclusively on Canadian and American folk music. So she grew up listening to, you know, Pete Seeger and not at all to Israeli music. And then at some point when she turned like 18 or 19, she's like, oh my God, the natives, by which I mean to say the people in her very country, they're making some pretty good music. And then she just kind of opened up and became this really successful singer and, and toured with a bunch of, I mean, backup singer toured with a bunch of of the most famous artists in Israel and then started her own group called Habanot Nechama, which is like a huge, huge hit. Now she has a solo career, really beautiful and soulful stuff. We'll have a brief interview with her, then we'll play one of her songs called A Prayer for the Mothers, which she wrote together with uh, a group of Israeli and Palestinian women uh, working for coexistence. You had kind of an interesting childhood. You grew up partly in Israel, right? partly in Canada. Your parents were originally, as we call them in Israel, Anglos. Is that true? Well, my dad is. Uh, yeah, he, he was from Canada originally, but I grew up in Israel. I did a lot of summers in Canada, and I grew up in an English-speaking home, and I grew up on Pete Seeger, and my dad was a banjo player. So a lot of my musical uh, roots are on the other side of the world. So you're a kid, and everyone around you listens to what? Machina or, you know, some other Shlomo Alti, some Israeli music and, and yeah. you're doing Pete Seeger. What's that like? Um, I, I was living in a bubble and um, it was, I felt a little bit alienated to Israeli culture for many years because really my home was full of uh, American folk music and Irish folk music. And then I grew up to love Joni Mitchell and John Baez and Bob Dylan. So I think it was maybe when I was uh, around 25 that I started discovering the beauty of Israeli music and starting to connect to myself as an Israeli artist as well, singing in Hebrew. Um, but yeah, I mean, I felt, I guess, I felt uh, very special, I guess, that, that I am privileged to have this kind of music and art um, uh, rooted in me. What does it sound like to you, Israeli music, when you, when you finally get down to discovering it? What, what, does it, what does it evoke in you? What does it suggest? Well, now, you know, I'm 38 years old, and I never really left Israel. I only visited out of Israel. So my Israeli identity grew stronger, and I fell in love with, with Israeli culture. Um, and I feel it is part of me. Um, but it, it took some time for me to open up to that. First of all, it's harder uh, because it's not as round. Uh, the vowels, 
um, they're they're very um, square. There's a lot of <laughs> going on. <laughs> and it's it's harder to sing that way, but I learned how to do it, and it brings out something else. Um, like what? Me. A spiritual connection that I can't explain. I feel very, like Hebrew is a very spiritual language. And the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew, how do you say otiot? The letters? The letters. The Hebrew letters, they, they have some kind of magic. And there's a lot of games that you can play with the Hebrew language. And finding out uh, how words can mean so many different things. Um, and I guess I just really connect to that. And so what do you think, because uh, you also, uh, you know, you sing partly in Hebrew, partly in English, and you also, you also tour a lot, and, and you're going to be here in New York very soon. What do you think people hear, uh, Americans, when they hear you? Do you think they hear some vague cosmopolitan artist, or do they hear something that's specifically Israeli? What, what kind of emotional value do you think they take from your music? I think it's, you know, it's not the language, but it's the spirit that they can feel and that is something that even if i wasn't using words uh, i bring that spirit um, that spirit that is coming from being who i am uh, it's a lot about being an israeli wo woman it's a lot about being a woman and it's a lot about um, being also a citizen of the world and i work a lot in my music for the last few years has been about connecting cultures and con connecting languages. And I started singing in Arabic as well and singing with Arabic singers and working for peace and finding the positive side and the light that is in my identity. Because for many years, I felt that uh, I didn't feel any value to my being Jewish. And this is something that's beyond words. And I think that this is the frequency that is in my music and it's uh, a lot of good and it's really what i try to do when i sing to an audience is remind them of the light that they have inside of them have them connect to some deep place of real meaning of our being it's very spiritual and i guess that one of the things that a lot of people tell me after my concerts is that hey you've inspired me to be better or you've inspired me to go write a song and this is what I want to do with my music is, you know, inspire people to, you know, be happy, to find depth and to um, feel creative. Inshallah. So what, what song should we play to, to get people feeling inspired for your Matzmot? I, I, uh, I would suggest Prayer of the Mothers. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Gail Deckelbaum with the prayer for the mothers. Preach. Mazel tovs. Have we any? We have. So, Leo, what have you? To my beloved... To Israel? Eternal homeland. Israel, I love ya. Happy birthday.
this is to my people, the accountants who just got their tax day. <laughs> I just feel like and here we have the entirety of modern Jewish history covered. <laughs> no, I just think it's amazing. And I hope all they're the all partying. All the CPAs. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You want to share the third, the third, <laughs> the third leg of the tripod? Happy anniversary to listeners Melanie and Gary Suswine. Yay! <laughs> Until 120. Oh, May your marriage last a long-ass time. Little reminder, we are taking stories for our conversion episode. If you are a convert, a Jew by choice, and you want to tell us something meaningful or beautiful or hilarious or funny or sad about that journey, leave a message of under one minute that begins with your name and where you're from at 914-570-4869. And in early June, we're all going to be reading The Ruined House by Ruby Namdar. So go Go buy a copy, pay retail, read the book. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message at 914-570-4869. For merchandise, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Follow Tablet on Instagram or Twitter at tabletmag. And follow us, this here show. We have our own Twitter account at unorthodox underscore pod. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. It is edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Cantor Stuart Figa. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We recorded Argo Studios, which does not arrange its payoffs through Michael Cohen, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>